Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. Let's bow again together in prayer. And I'd invite you to bow your head and I'd give you just a moment of quiet to to really just pray two things. First, if you would, thank the Lord for bringing you here today. Just thank him that you're here, surrounded by people who are rejoicing in salvation. So many places you could be that would be detrimental to your well-being. This is a place of mercy and hope and goodness. Simply thank God that you're here. And second, I'd invite you to take a moment and ask God to warm your spirit and your heart by the fire of his word, by the heat and light of his gospel. Lord Jesus, you call us to be fishers of men. And right now, we do not want to labor in vain. Right now, Lord Jesus, we don't want to cast the net and catch nothing. Lord Jesus, show us where exactly and how precisely to cast the net. By your living word, and close the souls in the gospel net that they may not escape your love. Now, Lord, bring in a multitude of souls. We want the net to be bursting with souls for the Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It's my joy this morning as we celebrate the birth of the Savior to preach the glorious good news of the gospel from Romans chapter 5. If you've brought a Bible, I'd invite you to open to Romans chapter 5. There's usually a Bible in about every third chair or so underneath the chairs in front of you. And Romans is in the New Testament. It's probably about three quarters of the way through that big Bible. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then Acts, and then the epistles. And Romans is right up at the beginning of those letters or epistles. Romans chapter 5 is where we'll find the glorious good news of the gospel. And as I preach the good news of the gospel, I preach this so that it might convert those who have never believed the gospel, those who aren't truly following Jesus. I preach this that you might be converted. And as I preach the gospel from Romans chapter 5, I also preach it for the likewise dual purpose that those of you who are following Jesus, that this declaration of the gospel would conform you closer to Christ Jesus in his glory and in his love. Our title this morning from Romans 5 is Second Adam from Above. And think with me about replacing a leader. Maybe you have a favorite football team and your quarterback is injured or retires and they have to replace the leader of the team. More significantly, maybe your country has a president or a prime minister who needs to be replaced. 
I'd say even more significantly than a football team or a country, the times come when a church has a pastor who, for whatever reason, leaves, and there needs to be a new pastor to help lead that congregation. We see this process of replacing a leader often in the Bible. God has these purposes, and God's purposes never fail, but people often fail. And God sends someone to accomplish something, and that person doesn't quite get it done, so then God sends someone else, and then God sends someone else, and then God sends someone else. God sent Moses to lead Israel into the promised land. Moses, well, he did all right, but he didn't get all the way and he didn't make it into the promised land. So after Moses left the scene, God sent Joshua. The people of Israel asked for a king. They got this king named Saul, and he didn't quite model what exactly a king ought to be. So then when Saul left the scene, he was replaced by a guy named David. One of Jesus' apostles was the worst one, Judas. And then a Bible trivia question is, when Judas was gone and they gathered together and they elected a new apostle, what was that guy's name? It's told for you in the beginning of Acts. If you've been with us in ABF, and if you're new here, ABF stands for Adult Bible Fellowship. The way the church works is on purpose. We all get together in a big room here where everybody sings and everybody prays, and then one person preaches the Bible verse by verse to a big group of people. But that's half of what we do. The other half of what we do is we scatter and we gather in rooms all around this place in smaller groups every Sunday morning that's called Adult Bible Fellowship. And there we pray together, we share prayer requests, and we do this kind of dialogue, Bible teaching where we dig into it together. And right now in our ABFs, we're studying Genesis. And maybe you remember this, this pattern of the generations in Genesis, and significantly the number 10... We have Adam, and then exactly 10 generations after Adam, we have Noah. Adam blows it, and the, the whole world is changed. And exactly 10 generations later, we have the whole world suffering the consequences of that sin and almost like a new beginning with Noah. And then significantly, exactly 10 generations later after Noah, after the Tower of Babel and everyone's scattered and they can't do what God's calling them to do, God calls 10 generations later this man Abram and he calls him Abraham to make a new start. There are dozens and dozens of times in the Bible, just as there are dozens of times in your own life, where one leader doesn't quite get it done and another one comes to take his place. Who could replace Adam? Like, handmade by God without an earthly father and mother? Who could replace Adam? Who could be begotten directly by God without sin as Adam was? Only one who was born of a virgin without a sin nature, and if he was really going to replace Adam, then early in his lifetime, he would have to directly address a satanic temptation. 
And if he was really going to replace Adam, then instead of falling, he would have to stand strong. Who could possibly undo the calamitous consequences of Adam's failure? The only one who could is the one that the Bible calls in a couple different places, the next Adam or the second Adam or the last Adam. This man goes by this title, the last Adam or the second Adam, in at least two places in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15 and our text this morning, Romans chapter 5, where Adam failed and ruined our relationship with God. The second Adam reinstated our relationship with God. The title this morning from Romans 5, we're calling it the second Adam from above. This is a line from one of our favorite Christmas hymns, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King. Adam's likeness, now efface. Stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. It says, Adam's likeness now efface. If you efface public property, they'll arrest you or at least fine you. Adam's likeness is the likeness of sin, the likeness of walking up to satanic temptation and saying, yes, I want to do that, and turning your back on God. So the hymn writer says, Adam's likeness now efface. Stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. And it just, it, it's, it melts me that the hymn writer, as a good poet would, he brings it to an issue of love. Not just obedience, not just keep the law in our place, though he emphasizes that in the hymn. Reinstate us in thy love. Who could do that? Only Jesus, the second Adam from above. The second Adam from above. In Romans 5, the Apostle Paul, in preaching the gospel, goes so far as to divide all of history into two eras, each with its own Adam, each with its own founder, each with its own covenant or corporal head in whom everyone else either loses or wins, either is condemned or is justified, either goes on in death or lives forever to eternal life. This is the gospel we find in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned 
through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Just as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What a fascinating little set of verses here. We often find this phrase, much more. We often find this phrase, when this happened, so that happened. And we have this wonderful promise that there's an abundance of grace abounding. The first idea, the first big idea to look at here is the idea of sin. Verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world, Three letters, S-I-N, sin. What is sin? Maybe this question was often asked in my house when our kids were still living with us and they all had their driver's licenses and we're, you know, everybody's going every way. We'd often ask the question, when I woke up in the morning, the garage door was still open. Who left the garage door open? Or as many times as I told them, the keys have to be left in this particular ceramic bowl every time you come home. The keys aren't there. Who has the keys? Or maybe in your house around Christmas time, it's who finished all the cookies? We often ask these questions. Who did this? We We want to find someone to blame. And I suppose you could be relatively innocent by asking who finished all the cookies. If you're like a career hardened criminal, then you know you finished all the cookies and yet you still put it on your family. Who finished all the cookies? That's like ultra transgression. But, you know, when we ask that question, who did this, who did that? I just want to say we're already automatically showing our kind of trampoline bounce against what the Bible says our problem is. We always want to blame somebody else. We're okay, it seems, with a doctrine of sin if I'm the victim and you have sinned against me. But we're not so okay with what Romans 5 says, which is that you are the one guilty of sin. We're all conditioned by our own carnal flesh and also by this satanic systemic world that we live in, we're all conditioned to bounce right away to this conclusion. My problems are external to me and my hope and my salvation is internal to me. And it's not true. Your sin problem is internal to you and your salvation has to come from another It's never going to come from your own righteousness. The primary problem for all of us is internal, our own sin. And the primary solution or salvation for all of us is the righteousness of Jesus Christ's life, Jesus' death, and Jesus' resurrection. What is sin? It's called sin in verse 12. It's called sin in verse 
13, he makes this contrast that even before the Ten Commandments, Moses, people were sinning. Like the, 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 the law of God, as it were, was written in the conscience, was written in creation, at least the moral, the, the, the moral law as it was revealed from Moses. We had a sense of it in our own conscience even before the law came. It's called sin. In verse 14, it's a bigger word. It's called transgression. And then in verse 15, it's called a trespass. The free gift is not like the trespass. In verse 16, it's called judgment and condemnation. Sin brings judgment and condemnation. Sin is a trespass against the boundaries that God has written. Sin is a transgression against the loving and good law of God. That's what sin is. Just like Adam and Eve were told by God, enjoy every tree of the garden, but don't eat from that one. They chose to call the shots themselves and transgress God's law. And they fractured the creation as a result of that. Instead of living before their maker in obedience and love, they decided to be their own God, so to speak, and rebel against God's good commandments. It's easy to think of sin as a relatively minor thing when I think of my own sin, but sin is uh, one theologian called sin cosmic treason. I think that's accurate. Sin is cosmic treason. In Romans 3, verses 10 through 12, it says, there is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Romans 3, verses 10 through 12, emphasize that sin is a refusal to seek after God. Sin is treason against God. I'll tell you just two things about sin that maybe you don't think about enough. First, sin is not just behavioral, it's also relational. Sin is not just behavioral, it's also relational. We can think of, we commonly think of sin as naughtiness, misbehavior. And sin is behavioral. But the point is, sin is not just behavioral, it's also relational. When Adam sinned against his creator, he was sinning against the love of God. He was sinning against the covenant relationship that he had with God. This is why throughout the Old Testament, sin is called adultery. Now, adultery is a sin to, to, to be unfaithful to one's spouse, but sin is called adultery against God, our creator. It's cosmic treason. It's a relational betrayal. It's spiritual adultery because every good gift is from God and we use those very gifts to disregard and rebel against God. And that's sin. Sin is not just behavioral. It's also relational. But then second, sin is not just horizontal. It's also vertical. Sin is not just against other people and against the planet. Sin is against God. Sin is not just horizontal. It's also vertical. Sin is not just against other people. It's against God. The horizontal effects of our sin can be devastating. Many of us feel the pain of family breakup, particularly around Christmas time. And we need mercy and help from God to get through that. 
The, the horizontal effects of sin can be devastating, and they are. But sin is not just against other people. Sin at its essence is a transgression against God. When King David sinned, which was bad, the good thing that he did is he wrote like the best confession of sin in the Old Testament when he wrote Psalm 51. And he said to God, I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You see, he didn't relativize his sin according to the subjective standards of the cultural milieu that he lived in. He said, God, I sinned against you and you're right and I'm wrong. That's why in Romans 3, when it describes sin, it says in verses 14 that, that their feet are swift to shed blood, their paths are, are quick to ruin, the way of peace they have not known. And it says in 3.18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. I was recently reading a book, uh, or an article rather, about the doctrine of sin. And the author reminded me of this fascinating and devastating fact. Sin, sin is the only noun in the English language that's larger in its singular form. Think about that. Sin is the only noun in the English language that's larger in its singular form. This is the way, by the way, that Romans 5 uses the word sin. It talks about transgressions and trespasses and behaviors and misdeeds, but sin, qua sin, that is sin nature, that is the sin nature we inherited from Adam, sin is bigger than sins at the deepest level. Romans 5 says, we are sinners because we sin, and we all sin. He says that in 12 and 13. Death spread to all men because all sin. We are sinners because we sin. But back behind that, we sin because we are sinners. We sin because we are sinners. There's a nature that we inherited from the first Adam. Adam's likeness now efface. Stamp thy holy image in its place. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. All the theology books, all the theology that Romans 5 is trying to say is summarized in that six-word children's rhyme. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. Footnote, that little rhyme, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. It's taken from the, as far as I understand historically, the reader that was used in public schools to teach children how to read, both in England and in the United States of America. Good luck finding that in the public schools today. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. So if one sinned and we all fell when he sinned, how, how does that work? That's what it says in verse 12. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And that's what it says in verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. It is true that one sin counted for all of us because we were all in Adam as our representative. But it's also equally true that one obedience, one act of sacrificial love on that cross counts for all of those who would be Christians. And we get in because we're in Christ. 
That's the contrast. You see it in verse 15. The free gift is not like the trespass. If many died through one man's trespass, I love this, much more, much more, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. You see it in verse 17. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Christ Jesus. Adam, to every man and woman in the human race, Jesus Christ, to every man and woman who will receive his grace, believe on his name, and be saved. Each one stands representative of the constituency of the crowd whom they represent. Adam and all sinned in him, Jesus Christ, all can be saved through his righteousness. The one man's disobedience or the one's obedience accounts for all of us. So you see, Romans 5 really does divide it into two halves, ruined humanity and redeemed humanity. Humanity dead in Adam, humanity made a new to eternal life in Jesus Christ. Adam is the one who took the tree that was not his and so sinned. Jesus Christ is the one who died upon the tree that was not his, that was ours, but he took it as our substitute. Are you still in Adam or are you in Christ. If you're still in Adam, you're headed for death. That's what it says in verse 12. It's an undeniable fact that in our world, everybody dies. It's a Sunday like today is probably the only Sunday that I literally, no offense, I mean, I'm not offended. I literally like get elbowed out of my front row seat because everybody with their camera wants to be up here to take pictures of all the kids and record it. And, and um, that's good. That's as it should be. But even on a day like today when all the kids look so beautiful, the girls with their big bows in their hair, um, whenever a child is born, we wonder if they'll find love. We wonder if they'll be happy. We wonder what they'll end up doing. We never wonder if they're going to die because they will. Everybody dies at some point or another. That's what Romans 5 is saying. And the reason that everybody dies is because of sin. The Bible says more about death than you typically think about. And that makes the Bible a book that you ought to listen to more than you normally do because I, th I think you'll find the things that you avoid thinking about are the very things that the Bible pushes you to think about because they're, they're better for you than avoiding them. The Bible says, well, at least three things about death. First, death is physical separate, first, death is spiritual separation from God. That's what happened to Adam. He had this relationship of love with God, and when he sinned, he was spiritually separated from God. That's what Ephesians 2 says. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You're darkened in your understanding and alienated from the life of God. So if the Bible says at least three things about death, one thing that it says is death is spiritual separation from God. But a second, maybe more obvious thing about death is that death is physical separation from other human beings and all the joys of life. Death is physical separation from my own 
body, so to speak, or the bodies of other people and all the enjoyment of life. That's what we normally mean when we talk about death, is physical death. But third, and most consequentially, the Bible speaks of death as the second death or eternal death or the condemnation of hell. That is, separation from God's love and instead receiving God's condemnation forever. And this is what the Bible teaches here in Romans 3, here in Romans 5. And along with that, without denying that, you've landed in a church that really believes in heaven and hell. The Bible teaches that there is a way. In fact, Romans 5 indicates that Jesus Christ is the way to be led out of condemnation and hell and into salvation and eternal life. And so I would read again from verse 17. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. See it in verse 21. As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus Christ remedies all three of these kinds of death. In Jesus Christ, we're restored in love to our relationship with God. In Jesus Christ, like he said in John 11, even when you die, you will still live, for he is the resurrection and the life. And certainly, we're delivered from the torments of hell because Jesus, so to speak, absorbed our hell on the cross. He absorbed the wrath of God. So he delivers us from the fear of death. The gospel is nothing less than this. The one who gave the law kept the law in the place of those who refused to keep the law and instead broke it. The law maker became the law keeper in the place of the law breaker. That's what Romans 5 is getting at. God put his son upon the tree, his son who was perfect and didn't deserve wrath in the place of all those who would believe in him. Disobedience, Adam grasped the forbidden fruit. In obedience, Jesus took what wasn't his, that is our sin, and made it his own. I've I've carried around and quoted dozens of times through the years this little explanation of the gospel from John Stott, an evangelical pastor from uh, London. He simply says this, the concept of substitution lies at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. That is sin. But then God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself, that is the son of God, where only man deserves to be. That's the savior on the cross. And so I would simply and directly ask you, is Jesus Christ your savior? Have you confessed your sin? and believed in him? Do you have a living faith in Jesus that wants to follow Jesus as the way and the truth and the life? This is the glorious good news of the gospel, the second Adam from above, 
to reinstate us in God's love. Would you bow with me for prayer? As we bow for prayer, I'd again give you a moment to pray. And first, I would uh, lead you in prayer, especially those of you who maybe you don't pray often and you're not sure that you're a Christian or you're sure that you're not yet a Christian. I would lead you to pray this way. God, thank you for bringing me here so that I could hear this gospel. And God, I, I believe. God, I want to believe. Just say, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I admit it and I confess it. And Jesus, I know that I need you to be my savior. Help me. Have mercy on me. Show me who you are so that I can follow you. And those of you here who are born again believers, I would simply encourage you to thank the living God for this glorious good gospel and pray something like this. Lord Jesus, melt my spirit and my heart in this moment by your great love in the gospel so that I'll be far less selfish and far less sinful and a much, much deeper disciple of Jesus Christ who lived and died and rose again for me. Amen. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.